You see, the reason why the tongue is a barometer measuring your spiritual maturity is because Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, your words are not just random. Your words are the overflow of the things that are going on in your heart. And this is why James says that the one who does not stumble in what he says is able to bridle his whole body, because the heart is the mission control center for your entire life. This is why Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything that you do flows from it. So your speech is a gauge for your spiritual maturity because it's a window into your heart, and from your heart flows all of your thoughts and choices and words. When we do biblical counseling, we want, to, we want people to experience heart change, and therefore someone's words become a very important spiritual diagnostic tool in counseling. If you're counseling somebody, if you're discipling somebody, and you're helping them to grow in Christ, listen closely to the words that are coming from their mouths. Maybe ask certain questions and, and get them talking about things. Ask them what they desire. Ask them what they're afraid of. Begin listening to those words. That will give you insight into some things that are going on in their hearts. I want you to do a little mental exercise right now by doing a little silent inventory on the kinds of sinful speech that has emerged from your mouth in the past seven days. You didn't know church was going to be that painful this morning, did you? I want you to do that. Think back. Adults, teenagers, kids, I want you to participate in this. Go back in your mind over the past few days and consider the words that have been coming out of your mouth. Have there been any ugly words? How about bitterness? How about gossip? Angry words? Lying? Manipulative speech? Exaggeration? Slander? Complaining and grumbling? Have there been words of backbiting? How about crude and inappropriate joking? Ungracious words? Impatient words? Irritable speech? Fearful speech? Words of unbelief? Words that tear others down? to make you look superior. Judgmentalism. You want me to stop? Is there anything on that list that's showing up in your inventory? Uh, for some of you, maybe it was all of the above. I don't know. Here's the point. Those ugly things that were coming out of your mouth this week did not come out of your mouth because of something somebody else did. They didn't come out of your mouth because somebody let you down or because of, of some, how somebody else treated you. It's easy to blame our ugly words on circumstances and other people. But the hard truth is that the anger and the bitterness and the impatience and the crudeness that came out of your mouth this week happened because you have an angry, bitter, impatient, and crude heart because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that's why it's so hard to control your tongue. Because the battle isn't just about physically mastering your vocal cords. It's about a change of heart. That's what Christian growth, that's what Christian sanctification is all about. 
And the battle for growth is not optional because faith works. And faith works to make our speech more and more like Christ's. And the stakes in this battle are high because one little word can go a long, long way. And that's where James is taking us next as we consider the disproportionate power of the tongue, the disproportionate power of the tongue. Verse 3, James says, if we put into the mouths of horses bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. You think about how huge and powerful a horse is, nearly half a ton. Uh, In James's day, the horse was pretty much the pinnacle of raw power. Uh, We even recognize that today. We, We talk about horsepower and engines. If a horse goes wild, it can kill you. James probably saw those huge war horses that the Roman cavalry rode. Uh, He had at least heard about, if not personally seen, the famous chariot races that were popular in that day. Maybe you've seen the movie Ben-Hur, and you know something. I'm not talking about the one that just came out a few years ago. I'm talking about the good one with Charleston Heston. Charlton Heston a long time ago, that one. And it's really amazing watching these, uh, these beasts run around the track and and, 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 and what the rider can do, you've got these incredibly powerful beasts, and then you've got a puny human on it, <laughs> holding reins attached to a little tiny bit. And with that, he can guide the horse wherever he wants. This little teeny tiny bit is able to give you total control over a beast so massive. Or maybe you've seen some of these other horse competitions where even like a, a child who is well-trained, who knows what they're doing. A little 100-pound child can have the horse do various tricks and and things. Verse 4, James switches uh, analogies, illustrations. He says, look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. Now, the Jews were not seafaring peoples. You know, you, you didn't hear about the the Jewish, the mighty Jewish navy in the first century. Uh, But they were familiar with ships, both because of the Jewish fishing industry, like that in the Sea of Galilee, and also their Roman overlords uh, made extensive use of large warships. Again, I'm thinking Ben-Hur, ramming speed. What a great scene that was. And these great ships are guided, he says, by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. It's truly amazing that something so big can be controlled by something that is so small. And James' point in both illustrations is that a small thing can have great effects, like the horse's bit and the ship's rudder and the mouth's tongue. That's what James means in verse 5 when he says, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts great things. Like the bit, like the rudder, the tongue is a small thing, and like the bit and like the rudder, the tiny tongue has disproportionate power. It's very small compared to the rest of our body, and yet it has very big effects. Now, for certain, there is a positive aspect to this. One little word can have an incredible impact for good and for blessing, can it? The Bible talks about this in numerous places. Proverbs says, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Elsewhere it says, a soft answer, a soft word turns away wrath. 
Some of you may be able to recall a kind word of encouragement, a loving word, a piece of timely advice, and such words can become defining moments in your life and even change the course of your life as a rudder turns a ship around. Of course, on a larger scale, we've seen the positive usage of words as you think about national leaders, as you think about people like Winston Churchill, whose incredible rhetorical abilities inspired a nation, gave courage to allies, and rebuked the enemy, and he rallied a nation and a world during World War II just with his tongue. There are good and positive uses of the tongue, but that's not James' main point here. James is now turning the rudder, so to speak, in a different direction because he wants to give us negative warnings in regards to the tongue, namely that there is great destructive force in the tongue. Verse 5, he says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. In October of 1871, one Sunday evening, the great Chicago fire devastated the city. It raged on for two days. Over 17,000 buildings were destroyed. Over 250 people were killed. Many of us know about that fire, but what many of us don't know is that on, a, on the very same day elsewhere, one little spark produced a fire in the north woods of Wisconsin that lasted for an entire month, an entire month, killing more people than the Chicago fire, consuming billions of yards of timber, and, and it all began from one teeny tiny little spark. James is warning you, warning us, that the tongue has that same kind of devastating inflammatory power. One little word can have an incredible and unintended impact, and, and we, with our lack of self-control in our speech and our lack of wisdom in carefully weighing what we say, can cause tremendous devastation way out of proportion to what we intended or even thought possible. One of the biggest lies that I've heard is this, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Really? Does anybody really believe that? It's not true. You can recover from broken bones, but how long does it take to recover from words like, I hate you, you idiots? You never do anything right. Why can't you be like your older sister? Maybe we should get a divorce. I don't forgive you. I can't stand you. For some people, on the receiving end of words like that, the wounds of those words go deep and they ache for years as those words are replayed in your mind over and over. Words have incredible destructive power. You think of sins like gossip, for example, or slander, and oh, how the wildfire analogy applies with gossip, doesn't it? It starts with two people, and before you know it, it's reached the ears of half the church. Proverbs chapter 16 says, a worthless man plots evil and his speech is like a scorching fire. A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer, that's another way of saying a gossip, because that's often how gossip is, right? Did you hear? Did you know about that? Did you see that? A whisperer separates close friends. 
How many relationships, how many relationships have been needlessly damaged and ruined because of whispering? Again, Proverbs 26 says, For lack of wood the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. And there's that connection to the heart again. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. We gossip because we like it. Our hearts crave it. There are, there are dark desires in our hearts that are being satisfied when we gossip. And so the little tongue can cause big, big damage. Sometimes being on the receiving end of evil speech feels like physical blows to the body. Job, in the book of Job, talking to his worthless friends, says that you're crushing me with your words. Solomon says in Proverbs 12, 18, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. Have you ever been on the receiving end of a harsh word and it felt like you were stabbed? Sometimes people do not take their rash, foolish words seriously. They gloss over them, they minimize them, or they just ignore the damage they do. People say, oh, I was just joking. You ever heard that one? They say something funny, quote-unquote funny. I was just kidding. You know me. Hey, hey, that's just how I am. I just say stuff sometimes. I'm not trying to hurt people. I just tell it like it is. Heard that one? And yet what they don't realize is that their words are like sharp, stabbing swords or sometimes like hand grenades causing horrible collateral damage to those closest to them. Verse 6, James says, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. What does he mean by that? Well, I think the idea is that all kinds of unrighteousness can come forth in our speech. Gossip, lying, lust, slander, bitterness, flattery, anger. Speech is involved in almost every form of wickedness. Oh, what's more, while we may not be able to do everything, guess what? We can say everything. Uh, There may be certain evil desires in our hearts that we would never have the courage or opportunity to do, but it can come out in our speech. Or, if we don't have the courage to speak it aloud, we will speak it in our minds and cherish those words as we turn them over in our heads and in our hearts. In that way, the tongue is indeed a world of unrighteousness. What's more, James, James goes on to say that the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body. This seems to speak of the defiling nature of evil speech and harkens back to what Jesus said, that what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. James goes on to say that the tongue sets on fire the entire course of life. Here James seems to point back to the fact that the tongue and the heart are connected, and the heart controls the course of your whole life, and so your tongue does as well. What's more, think about this. Uh, What you say can affect your entire life. One careless word, one lie, one flirtatious remark, one angry word, 
One little word of gossip, one innuendo, like a little spark, can burn down a marriage, a friendship, a ministry, a church, a reputation, a life. And to drive the point home regarding the level of evil that comes because of our tongues, James just pushes it even further, and he says, the tongue is set on fire by hell. I mean, can he get any more strong in his language here? That word hell is, uh, translated as hell, is, is the word Gehenna. The word refers to the valley of Hinnon, just southwest of Jerusalem. And man, did this valley have an evil reputation in Old Testament times. Uh, Pagan child sacrifices took place there. Later it became a place where trash and, 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 and the corpses of criminals and dead animals were dumped and burned. And the, the fire there burned all the time because there was so much. It just kept burning and consuming things. It was a place that was considered unclean and unfit for decent usage. And because that fire constantly burned and the maggots were always present, Jesus used Gehenna to represent the eternal, never-ending torment of hell, which is the, final, the place of final punishment for the wicked and for Satan and for his demon, demons. And in picturing the tongue as set on fire by hell, James is asserting that the destructive power of the tongue comes from that great agent of destruction, Satan himself. Now, don't let that pass you. I want you to think about that very, very carefully. Does does this not raise the stakes in your speech? Are you engaged in slander? Are you being judgmental or unkind or unloving in your speech? Are you impatient or angry in your talk? Do you have a weakness for gossip like delicious morsels? Uh, Do you speak bluntly and use humor to the point where it hurts others? Are you tearing down people with your words? You really need to take what James is saying seriously here because in those moments, James says, your tongue is is a fire and is being used by the devil to wreak havoc. So don't just hide behind the excuse of, well, that's just how I am. That's no big deal. It is a big deal. It's just words. No, it's more than just words. And when we sin in our speech, we are being played by Satan and he is using our speech to further his ends. Did you know this? Did you know that there's a line that's crossed when your speech is no longer just your speech, it's the devil's? And you become his mouthpiece? Do we not see that when Peter starts contradicting Jesus' words about his crucifixion, and Jesus rebukes Peter, and he says, what did he say? He says, get behind me, Satan. I wonder how often Jesus would say that to you and me in regards to the things that come forth from our mouths. And I wonder how often we should call out one another in the church for that kind of talk. Well, if that all wasn't encouraging enough, James, after forcing us to face the realities of our sinful speech, now forces us to face the fact that while we need to tame our tongues, it's impossible to do so which moves to my next point, the impossibility of taming the tongue. Verse 7, 
James says, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, uh, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. James here cites four classifications of animals, seems to be a callback to the fourfold division of animals in Genesis chapter 1 and the mandate that man is to have dominion over the animal kingdom. And man, though sinful, still in many ways has seen success in fulfilling that dominion mandate. It's amazing the level of mastery that we have demonstrated over creation. Go to the circus, you'll see elephants and lions obeying humans. Go to SeaWorld and see Shamu the whale, (laughs) jumping in and out of the water doing tricks. I've even heard that some dogs can be tamed, though I haven't seen that in my own house. But, but humans really have exercised impressive control over the animal kingdom. But with that said, verse 8, James says, no human being can tame the tongue. No man can completely fulfill what James mentions earlier in verse 2, uh, where, where he says, uh, uh, talks about never stumbling. None, none of us never stumble in what we say. None of us are perfect, able to bridle our whole body. We just can't do it. So James says that our tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. It's a restless evil. You know, evil is a restless thing, isn't it? There's never peace. There's never satisfaction. There's never fulfillment. It's always looking for the next thing. It reminds me of the devil in the book of Job, and God says, where have you been? And and he's like, I've been just going to and fro throughout the earth. There's no peace. New Testament says that the devil's like a, roaring lion, a roaming lion, and he's roaming around seeking somebody to devour. Often we're like that with our tongues, and we're like that with our tongues because our hearts are restless because we're not finding our rest in Christ. A restless evil full of deadly poison. This speaks of, again, of the power we have to hurt others with a tongue. Having a mouthful of deadly poison, what animal do you think of? Think of a snake, a serpent, venomous reptiles. This, this is how dangerous a human being with an unbridled tongue can be. This is how dangerous you can be. It's how dangerous I can be. Now, the fact that no man can tame the tongue does not absolve us of our responsibility in our speech. As early as chapter 1, James has told us that we must bridle the tongue. It is a necessary part of the Christian life, and so James has introduced a tension. Isn't that shocking? There are tensions in the Bible. We've been talking about that in our theology reading groups lately. Lots of tensions. Here's another one. We must bridle the tongue, but we can't. I'll circle back around to that tension in a bit, but let's keep walking through the the passage as James now shows us the inconsistency of the tongue. James goes on to write that, with it, with our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. We are not yet perfect. We haven't yet gained complete mastery over the tongue because we haven't yet gained complete mastery over our hearts. We are a mixed bag, aren't we? Even the best of Christians are. So we come to church and we pray and we sing praise songs and we have positive interactions with our brothers and sisters in Christ and we build up others and we affirm them in the faith and then we get in our cars and we shut the door and we grumble and complain about church. 
or we tear down others. We are so inconsistent, aren't we? Earlier, I asked you if you ever felt stabbed by the harsh words of others. Let me turn that around and ask, have you ever been the stabber? Some of us are in the habit of stabbing those around us with words, and we don't even realize it. Some of you wives, Monday through Saturday, every day are stabbing and slashing and cutting your husbands with your sharp words, putting them down, and your husbands are wounded and bleeding and hurting, and they are perplexed. Because when you talk to your girlfriends, you're, you're nice and kind and gracious to them, and then you get off the phone and you turn around and you thrust another blade into your husband whom God has called you to respect. And you're not even consciously thinking about that. You'd be horrified to know that that's what you were doing. And so I pray that if that's what you're doing, the Spirit would reveal that to you right now. Some of you husbands, Monday through Saturday, every day are killing the spirit of your wives with your words, your criticisms, your harsh tones, your preachy judgmentalism, your speech devoid of compassion and love. You speak with warmth and affection towards your buddies, and yet so much of how you speak to your wife communicates disapproval and dissatisfaction. You probably don't even realize you're doing it, and so I pray that if you are, the Spirit would reveal that to you this morning. Some of you parents, Monday through Saturday, are crushing the spirit of your kids with put-downs and insults. You rarely, if ever, build them up with encouragement, and you often speak to them in a way that you would never speak to other people's children. You'd be horrified to realize that you were doing that. I pray that the Spirit reveal that to you if you are. And kids, teenagers, you're not exempt. How many of you speak respectfully to the adults in your life, but when you speak to your own parents, it's dripping with contempt and disrespect? That's sword thrusts. I pray if you need to be convicted there, the Spirit would help you to see that. You see, we're all vulnerable to this kind of inconsistency in our tongues. If you're a Christian and you're two-faced in your speech, and we all are, it's actually something that's very unnatural according to what God has called us to be. That's why James says in verse 10, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. And he goes on to explain the strangeness of this with two illustrations. He asked in verse 11, uh, does a, a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. A spring will consistently produce one or the other. If it doesn't, something is seriously wrong. A tree will consistently produce the kind of fruit it was meant to yield. If an apple tree produces oranges, something has gone out of whack. And yet we, God's people, are strangely inconsistent. God did not create your mouth, and God did not save you to be a conduit, conduit of sinful speech. He, he created your mouth to be an instrument of grace and blessing to others. But we can't do it, which brings us back to the tension on the one hand, James expects us to have bridal tongues and consistently godly speech. And on the other hand, James tells us we can't do that. And James here doesn't completely solve the tension. He will somewhat as the book progresses. 
But I do believe he's left us a little bit of a clue here in chapter 3 that I want to share with you before closing, because if I don't share that with you, I'll leave you totally in despair, and I don't want to do that. Which leads to my final thought, and that is the one hope for the tongue. The one hope for the tongue. The clue is in verse 8, where James says, no human being can tame the tongue. And you may say, well, how does that solve the problem? (laughs) That just seems to highlight the problem. But I would challenge us to think deeper about this text. Augustine, the great Augustine, or Augustine, however you say his name, I know people go back and forth on that, he said, he wrote, that James does not say no one can tame the tongue, but no man, so that when it is tamed, we admit that it was done by the mercy of God, the help of God, and the grace of God. Elsewhere, Augustine writes, O Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. Uh, What he meant essentially was, you call us to do this thing, Lord, and yet we can't do it on our own apart from your enabling power, so you enable it. The 17th century Puritan Thomas Manton agrees, and in his commentary on James, he writes that difficulty and impossibility as to the creature's endeavors are left, that we may fly to God. The horse doth not tame himself, nor the camel himself, nor man himself. Man tameth the beast, and God tameth man. Thou tamest a lion, and thou didst not make it. God made thee, and shall he not tame thee? Boy, I wish I could write as good as Manton. Manton then reminds us of Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus, speaking of salvation, says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. I I think Augustine and Manton are on the right track. No man can tame the tongue. But Jesus Christ, the God-man, can. Jesus came into the world specifically to save people like us whose speech is corrupt and poisonous and wicked. And that speech comes from wicked hearts. He came to save us from our own corruption. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans talks about the guilt of mankind. And in Romans chapter 3, he writes that, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throats is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Isn't it interesting? that the first thing Paul mentions is evidence of our sinfulness and proof that we deserve condemnation is our speech. He sounds a lot like James here. And Paul goes on to say that because of our sinful hearts, we deserve to die. Tongues that are lit on fire by hell deserve hell. But the gospel tells us that Jesus came to rescue us by first doing what we could not do. Uh, The apostle Peter writes that Jesus committed no sin. And check this out, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
every word that came from the mouth of Jesus was good and perfect and true because Jesus is that perfect man that James talks about in verse 2. He is the man who never stumbled in what he said and was able to bridle his whole body because he had a perfect heart. And so Jesus lived the perfect life we could not live, and then he died the death we deserve to die, taking the sins of ugly hearts like ours on himself on the cross. And on him God rained down the wrath of hell, the fire of hell, judging those sins in the body of Jesus. But then he vindicated Jesus by rising him, raising him from the dead. So that any who might come to God in repentance and faith, receiving Jesus for all that He is and seeking freedom from their corrupt hearts, would be forgiven of all of the sin in their hearts. And so now, we who believe are united to the one who actually has the power to not just cleanse our heart of sin, but can actually do the other impossible thing, which is transform your heart. And that's really good news. Because some Christians act like God saves us through grace, but then after that it's all up to us to finish the job in our own strength. But that's not true. We not only rely on the grace of God for salvation, we also rely on the grace of God for our sanctification. And what does that look like? How do we depend on the grace of God so that we might grow in taming the tongue? Well, our time is almost done here. So I'm just going to be really quick, and then you can kind of expand your own personal studies on these things in your own time. Let me just give you three brief points of application. They're not in your bulletin. Jot them down in your bulletin if you want, if you can find room. I know I took up a lot of bulletin space this morning with all these points. But the first thing that we must do is pray. If God alone has the power to change our hearts, then God alone is the one whom we must approach and to whom we must cry out with the psalmist, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to evil. Notice there that David recognizes the connection between his mouth and his speech and his heart. A thousand years before James, David realizes that he does not have the power to tame the tongue, and so he goes to the one who does. And I wonder if you have had trouble with your own speech. You've tried many things. You've tried willpower. You've tried accountability. But, but friends, have you ever gotten on your knees every day and every night pleading with God to set a guard over your lips? to keep your heart from bending, inclining in an evil direction? Do you do that every single day? How often do you cry out with David in Psalm 51.10? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Here, David, in the wake of his own sin, humbly admits that the only hope he has for a right spirit, a steadfast and faithful spirit, is if the grace of God seizes his heart, transforming and renewing him. So first we pray. Second, we receive God's transforming power through his word, through the scriptures. Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
And a few verses later, we discover that we abide in Jesus by letting His Word abide in us. You will never bear any fruit for God, including godly speech, if His Word is not abiding in you. If, if, your, spe- your, your, speech, if your speech is the overflow of your heart, and, and, and if you're getting God's Word deep into your heart, that's going to, over time, change and transform your heart as you read it, as you receive it, as you meditate on it, as you memorize it. Remember, James himself has already told us the connection between God's Word and your growth in holiness. Do you remember what he said back in chapter 1? You can turn there if you want. James says in chapter 1, verse 21, "...therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness." Now, that would include sinfulness of the tongue. "...put all that away and receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your souls." Or, if you study deeply Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, those are great chapters to study like at the same time because there's lots of parallels there, you'll see in those chapters that we are told to do impossible things like put away slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. But then in those same chapters, the Apostle Paul gives us the solution on how to live that kind of life. He urges us in those chapters to let the Word of Christ, the Scriptures, dwell in us richly. And as we do, he says, it will bring to our tongues holy fruit and godly talk and godly teaching and songs of praise and thanksgiving and lives that are self-controlled. And finally, in addition to prayer, and in addition to God's Word abiding in you, the final step to, to working towards bridling that tongue more and more is you working at it. While some people believe that God's grace saves and after that it's all on us, Other people believe that God's grace means we don't do anything. We don't fight. We don't strive. We don't battle. We don't don't work towards holiness. We just let go and let God. That's the other extreme. But friends, relying on God's power to live for Him doesn't mean passivity. God's not going to obey for you. He's not going to read the Bible for you. You've got to work. Remember, faith works. That's the whole point of the book of James. Faith is living and active, and it does something. But, and this is crucial, know that while you work, you work not in your own strength. And so the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. That's sanctification, like wrapped up in one verse right there. So you work and you strive, but in the end you have hope, knowing that the real difference maker is not your work for God, but God's work in you, and this ultimately should give us great confidence. Because in this life, we are not promised perfection, 
but we are promised that we are growing towards a perfection that will be consummated later as God is more and more shaping us into the image of Christ. Rob Plummer says that true perfection in speech awaits the renewal of all things in the new heaven and earth. For now, believers stumble, repent, trust the righteousness of Christ, and see glimmers of the new age shining through their imperfect speech. We get glimmers now. One day it'll be the whole thing. And so we work towards that end, and we strive. But when we fail, when we are inconsistent and faithless, we don't despair, but we renew our hope in the one who is faithful. Because unlike us, everything that comes from God's mouth, including His promises, are good and faithful and true. Unlike us, He is consistently trustworthy in His speech, so we can bank everything on what He says. We can bank our final hope on His work in us. As Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I love this, he says, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray.